listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Our first teaching text today comes from Acts 1, 1 through 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Our second teaching text today comes from John 17, 1 through 11. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed to you those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Awesome. Church, you can take a seat. Do you all know who G.K. Chesterton is? Okay, a few folks in the room. If it helps you to get a mental image here, imagine if you crossed a walrus with a Monopoly man. <laughs> Huge dude, big mustache, top hat, cane, monocle, whole nine yards. G.K. Chesterton was a Christian writer and thinker in early 20th century England. He was a figure a lot like C.S. Lewis, and he wrote for a newspaper over a career of 40 years where he was termed the Prince of Paradox. He has all these great stories he's built up over that career that are kind of parables of the Christian life and a Christian worldview. And as I was preparing today's text, one of those stories kept coming to my mind Chesterton tells the story of two fish that were swimming along, 
And a third fish, an older fish, swims by their path and he stops and he says, lovely water today, isn't it, boys? And he continues on his way. And the two fish, they're standing there, or whatever the equivalent of standing is in water. And they look at each other, and one of them says to the other, what the heck is water? His point is, we find ourselves so immersed in some things, it's like water to fish. It's so normative, we can't even see it. We don't even know that it's there. The world around us is like the water that we live in. It's shaping our presuppositions, our values, and our assumptions. And this is one of the reasons why reading the Bible is so helpful to us. It pulls us out of our water and helps us examine what are the things that I am believing that are actually counter to the gospel of the kingdom, the value system that Jesus is introducing. And as a quick aside here, if you find that every time you read the Bible, it does nothing but confirm what you already think and feel, chances are you're not reading it for all it has to say. Because all of us have water that we are swimming in that is subtly shaping us away from the value system of the kingdom. As we read, we should realize that our way of thinking about things needs to be corrected, that we need to go back to the truth of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. And today, we're considering one of the events described in Scripture that ought to be helping us re-examine our presuppositions, which is the ascension. I feel like we don't talk about the ascension that often. We spend a lot of time talking about the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. But when we're talking about the ascension, we're talking about the reality that Jesus has taken his seat in glory on the heavenly throne at God's right hand. He has ascended into glory that he might govern the universe, taking the place that is rightly his as the firstborn of all creation. And this moment in which Jesus ascends is one of those moments which he calls the disciples' presuppositions into question during, and it should be for us a moment where we ask, do we understand the kingdom, the shape of it, that Jesus is bringing? We ought to look at the water we're swimming in. So the question I want you all to ask yourselves today is, how does Christ's ascension, that he's seated on the heavenly throne, change the way that I live? And what what I want us to see is that the path of the ascension is surprising. It takes the way of the cross. But there's also great comfort in the ascension to know that Jesus is reigning in heaven. It allows us to be his followers. So I'd like to begin by thinking about the surprising nature of the ascension. There's a moment described in the text that we just read, Acts 1-6, which raises this question of the disciples' missed expectations. And they say to him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Which doesn't seem like an unreasonable question. They've seen Jesus die, they witnessed it, and then miraculously he is raised to new life. Literally the most incredible event to happen in all of human history, and they're wondering, what do we do from here? What does this mean for us? And more specifically, Jesus, what are you going to do with the power that you clearly have over death? Will you at this time restore us to a military political victory that we once enjoyed as a kingdom? Will we now get to reign in a position of power? And the response of Jesus is that they're to wait. The way the kingdom is going to come, it's not like the military power the nation of Israel once enjoyed. It's not like the nation of Rome, which has power over them right now. Instead, the power of Jesus, the power of his kingdom, is going to come through the Holy Spirit, who's coming at Pentecost, which we'll remember next week. And this is the Spirit who gives 
other-centered sacrificial gifts that we might see the kingdom of God enacted in our world. Jesus is saying we will not see power come to bear as we take up arms. Instead, we will see power as we lay down our lives empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is the way that he modeled for us, and it's the way that we take up as his church. What the disciples are missing here is that the cross was not just the price of admission for the kingdom. It's a radical new way of being in the kingdom. Said another way, the disciples can't now look and say, I'm glad that whole cross thing is behind us. Now we get to kick up our feet and enjoy things. They're being invited into a new way of being in the kingdom. The cross will be what continues to mark them as the disciples of Jesus. So let me give you an illustration of what I mean. When I was in high school, there's a really prestigious college program called TAMS, Texas Academy of Math and Science. And this is a program where you'd test in your sophomore year and you'd begin as a full-time college student your junior year taking upper-level math and science courses they couldn't offer at a high school. And everyone who went to TAMS went on to work at Silicon Valley. They got super rich. They had the last laugh over every bully that had ever picked on them for being a nerd. And I had a friend, Rick, And Rick was brilliant. He was ranked five in our class of 1,000, even though I'd never seen him study before. And Rick really wanted to go to TAMS. And I remember him cramming for this test to make sure he'd get in. And sometime later, Rick had gotten into TAMS. He was about a year in, and we were talking about what it was like for him to be there. And he said, you know, I never stopped to consider that the math and science wouldn't stop at the entrance exam. We just do hard math and science every day. And this is where the disciples find themselves. They're thinking of the cross as the finish line, that things are done in Jesus, and there's a sense in which that's true. Jesus has finally sacrificed on our behalf, and yet the cross is also a starting line into following Jesus, into continuing to lay down our lives as he modeled for us so that we may see life flourish in others. Jesus is preparing them to live in a kingdom shaped by the cross. He's inviting them to live in a way primarily concerned with saying no to the things that I am owed, to the privileges that I have, so that I can see life in others. So the cross, it's not just the price of admission to the kingdom, it's the shape of our being in it. And this is true for all of us, not just the disciples. At least I know it's true for me. I want to experience the power of the kingdom in full force here and now. I don't want to be told to wait. I think about sin's effects in me and sin's effects on me, and I want them to be resolved. I don't want to be told that actually the kingdom is going to come by me continuing to lay down my life over and over again, but that is the invitation that Jesus is putting before us, that we will see more of his presence in the world through self-giving love, not coercion. And some of us may be thinking at this point, Why are the disciples asking this question? Because I said the way of the ascension is surprising, but if you're familiar with the New Testament, maybe you're thinking it's not that surprising because Jesus spends the majority of his teaching ministry saying things like, you need to lay down your life so that others can have it. It feels like we should be getting it by this point in time. It feels like the disciples should be getting it at this point in time. So I'd like us to look at John chapter 17, the second text that we had read today. John 17 is what we call the high priestly prayer. It's Jesus praying for his disciples before he leaves them. So he's preparing them for his absence, which will first come in the crucifixion and next come in the ascension. And he's trying to comfort them with this reality of where he is going to, that they haven't been abandoned, they haven't been forgotten. So he sets up the prayer 
by saying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. To say something is glorious is to say it's majestic, it's worthy, it's honorable, it's good. In the Greek, we often see a connotation with glory of light, the radiance of the splendor of God. To say something is glorious is it glows, it sheds light in a dark world. Or in the Hebrew, glory can have a connotation of weight. It's of significant substance. It's truly weighty. And the Hebrew there, it helps me. I get this picture in my mind of something that's truly glorious, something that's truly weighty. It has a mass to it. It draws us into an orbit around it that we might rightly behold and worship whatever that thing is. So they're hearing Jesus begin this prayer saying, my glory is about to be revealed. And the disciples are thinking to themselves in the categories they know, the water they know, how will the glory of Jesus be revealed? Well, surely it will be revealed in power as he takes over like we've seen Rome take over. And additionally, our ears ought to perk up at this idea. Jesus says, the hour is at hand, which if we've been paying attention to the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels, he's almost always saying, my time is not yet here. People want to crown him. They want to make him a Messiah. And he says, not yet. And so Jesus, in introducing this prayer, he's saying, hey, my glory is about to be revealed. You're about to see me for who I am. And it's happening right now. And if we didn't know the shape of the story, what we would expect next is something truly, in a worldly sense, miraculous. But what does come next? What's well, the betrayal and the arrest and the death of Jesus? That he lays down his life. This is the moment that is beginning his glory. So though the final glory that Jesus will go to is the ascension, is his heavenly throne, he doesn't despise the cross. He views it as something to have joy about as he's on his way to what is rightfully his. And we can get into trouble if we try to overly dissect these moments in the life of Jesus. The death doesn't make sense apart from the new life, which doesn't make sense apart from the new office that Jesus holds as he reigns in the heavens on our behalf. They're all tied together as one great event. All of it is his glory. But it's disorienting. It's disorienting that the glory of Jesus being revealed comes through the cross. It's a little bit like if you can imagine yourself waking up on the morning of your 16th birthday and your parents say to you, hey, we have a surprise for you. It's parked in the driveway. And you run outside to see parked there a brand new Razor scooter. It's like, well, technically this is a vehicle. <laughs> Thank you for that. But that is not what I was thinking. The disciples are disoriented in this moment. And this should be a stark, sober warning to us. The glory that Jesus is pointing to is glory that waits for him on the other side of the cross. If we want to have glory, we need to be prepared to go through the cross as well. This is the path we get to take. So what does this mean for us? In Acts, Jesus is telling his followers they're to wait. In John, he's praying about the glory to be revealed, but it's glory that comes with great suffering. It honestly sounds like a little bit of a letdown. How do we do this? How do we be a people who can wait? A people who can suffer? Because I don't know, actually I do know, in talking with you all, we are a people who wait and suffer. Can you see that in your own lives? 
Sometimes it feels like I don't understand what you're accomplishing here, Jesus, because I feel like I'm doing nothing but waiting and suffering. Does, does that feel like your experience? So at this point in the sermon, I've used a lot of Christian cliches. We're to take up our cross, we're to suffer with Christ. What does this mean for us? And this is where I hope the doctrine of the ascension will be helpful to us. In a practical sense, the reality of Christ's enthronement in heaven, though he endured the cross, he is now in power. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and that has implications for how we wait and how we suffer here and now. And so I want to consider two types of suffering, what I'll call involuntary and voluntary suffering. By involuntary suffering, I mean the fact that our world is broken. We find ourselves plagued by things that we would never choose, things that are in and of themselves evil, food allergies, friends who no longer want to hang out with us, rebellious children or obstinate parents, market downturns and job loss, cancer diagnoses, miscarriages and infertility, systemic racism. Our world is marked by all kinds of things that show this is not what it should be, whether it's from individuals or from systems of oppression. But thankfully, the biblical authors know the world that we live in. They're constantly addressing that we are a people who are waiting and a people who are suffering. The Apostle Peter, he speaks really clearly to suffering when he writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, that we should not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Think, don't be surprised when your life is on fire. Can you imagine that meme of the dog sitting at the kitchen table with the house on fire and he says, this is fine? This is Peter's description of our life. Don't be surprised. That's not the news I want to hear. I don't want to be told by one of the apostles, hey, it's a normal occurrence in the Christian life that you would be tried by fire. I don't have to explain that to you, right? We don't want that. We want what the disciples were expressing in Acts 1, the kingdom to come now. We want what John 17 sounds like, that the glory of God would be revealed now, not a cross that we take up on the way. Yet Peter goes on in verse 13 to say, we should rejoice as we participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So he's asking us, rejoice in suffering, which is a lot easier said than done. It's hard to keep going in our suffering. But I don't want us to mistake Peter. Peter is not out of touch with reality. He's somebody who's intimately acquainted with suffering. The church that he's writing to as he writes this letter is experiencing a degree of persecution that we would probably have a hard time even having a category for. So Peter isn't just blowing smoke here. What he's doing, he's able to tap into something that is allowing him to rejoice in the midst of his sufferings, to carry on in the midst of all the things that are going wrong in the world. What he's tapping into is the reality of the ascension of Jesus. I think in order for us to act on what Peter's telling us to do, to rejoice in the midst of our sufferings, the ascension of Jesus is a necessary doctrine. If we're to go through involuntary sufferings, we need a source of endurance, something that we can draw upon. If we find ourselves without a keen awareness of Jesus, what I worry is that when we think about Jesus, we think that he's on PTO following the resurrection. It's like he's on vacation. 
And he'll come back in the picture when the father taps him on the shoulder and says, hey, time to usher in the end of all things. That's not the biblical picture of what Jesus is doing right now. He is seated on the throne. He is governing the universe. And what that means for you and me is we don't have to worry, we don't have to fear. As Paul puts it in Romans 8, he is working all things for the good of those who love him who are called according to his purpose. When we see Jesus as the ascended king who's taken his rightful place in glory to continue on the governance of this world against the powers and principalities of this present darkness, we'll see we don't suffer as those without hope. Instead, we persist in doing good because the fires of this life, they're not fires of judgment. They're not fires because we've been forgotten. They're fires of refinement that we would see we have an assurance in Jesus as our faith is tested over and over again and is proven to be richer than gold, more precious than gold. What we're experiencing is part of our maturation in Christ. Because Jesus reigns, I can have confidence in God even when things don't make sense. Some of y'all may have heard that Tim Keller passed away this week. He's a giant in the faith. And I was really struck in reading some of his final statements that he released. When he was preparing for his death, he was totally steadfast, totally firm in the conviction and understanding that he was going to meet his Savior. And there was an abiding peace that was tangible in his words. He was saying, you don't have to be sad for me. I know where I'm going. With unveiled face, I'm meeting my Savior. And the solidity of Tim Keller's faith being expressed in the face of something like pancreatic cancer is rooted in a doctrine like the ascension. He knows who is in charge. Even in the face of something that is evil, something that is wrong and broken, he can have faith knowing Jesus sits enthroned over the flood. Jesus is still in charge. Speaking on the ascension, Keller once said that Jesus controls all things for the church. And therefore, you can face the world with peace in your heart. He's at the right hand of God as the executive director of history, directing everything for the benefit of the church. If you belong to him, then everything that happens ultimately happens for you. That's the peace the ascension brings. Keller had another line after this that I didn't include in the quote. He said, how does all that happen? I don't know. It would be trying to dump an ocean of knowledge into a thimble. We have to trust God to work that out. But we know that Jesus sits enthroned. So that's involuntary suffering. But we're also invited into voluntary suffering. And when I'm talking about voluntary suffering, I'm talking about the opportunities that are before us to willingly lay down our lives that other people might find life for themselves. And voluntary suffering can be small. So the other week, we were trying to get our kids out of the house to run off some energy, and we put on swimsuits and decided to go splash around in the fountains at TU, which I have no idea if you're allowed to do, but nobody stopped us. So we're going to keep doing that until we are told otherwise. And as we were getting our things ready to go play, we stopped and thought, we should invite some of our neighbors with us. So we have some neighbors who live on our street. They have kids of a similar age. We don't know that they follow Jesus, and we've been trying to build a friendship with them, which it's a great idea to invite them. Everything in me did not want to invite them, which makes me a bad person. But truly, it was my Saturday. I was tired after a week of meeting with people, and everything in me was like, oh my gosh, can I not have one hour of relative quiet? Can anybody resonate with that? Yeah, maybe. Yet, this was an invitation from God for me to enter into voluntary suffering 
to lay down my preferences that in relationship with these neighbors, I might find life, that they might find life. Voluntary suffering comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes. It's choosing to do a chore you know you won't be thanked for, or it's choosing to lay down a preference in the middle of a conflict with a roommate, or it's turning the other cheek when somebody says something cruel about you. Or it can be larger. It could be saying no to a larger, nicer house that you might steward your wealth in a way that blesses other people. Or maybe it's a willingness to open your home so that a child or a family who needs some stability that they don't have would be able to receive that. And those sufferings, they may not seem like much in comparison to the involuntary sufferings that we mentioned a moment ago, but really, practically, this is part of the way that God is inviting us into participating in the kingdom he is bringing by laying down our privilege that we might see life in others. And again, this is something we can only do if we're understanding the ascension. I can only behave this way if I truly believe Jesus is seated on the throne because if I think of the cosmic heavenly throne as vacant, I feel the need to play God over my own life. I feel the need to protect myself because there's this sense of, well, if I don't, who will? Who will look out for me? Who will make sure that I don't get taken advantage of? So let's say that you work in a place where you have some coworkers who like to talk about everybody else in the office. And you're worried that if this continues to happen, that there will be a reputation built up around you that's not true of who you are as an employee. And maybe it'll affect the promotion that you're up for. Maybe it'll affect your performance review. So maybe that fear drives in you this felt need to control the narrative around your employment a little bit more than you need to. Maybe it means that you're putting other people down or you're taking credit for things that aren't quite yours so that you can ensure I will be protected. You don't need to do that if you see that Jesus is, in fact, on the throne. Jesus is governing the entire universe, and he is for you. He's working all things for your good. The freedom that I experience in recognizing that I have a king who is on my behalf arranging things for my good frees me from self-protection, frees me from the need to guard myself. If we see Jesus as reigning as our king, it will set us free. And I can, in that place, lay down my preferences. I can lay down a Saturday afternoon. I can enter into a relationship with somebody who's hurt me before. I can do those things because I know ultimately I will be protected. I love the way Robert Murray McShane, a Scottish preacher, put it. He said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. We can freely obey because our King Jesus will protect us. So whether the suffering we face in this life is voluntary or involuntary, we're to take on our cross as those who will share in the glory of Jesus. He could look forward to the hope of the glory that lay before him and willingly lay down his life, and so can we, because we can look up and see our King is seated in heaven. What do we have to fear? There's, I was going to say, there's one other thing about the ascension. There are a lot of other things about the ascension. We are scratching the surface here. There's one other thing I want to say about the ascension that we haven't hit on yet. And it's something that's so obvious. It may be like the water that we're swimming in is something that we haven't even thought about. And it's that Jesus isn't here. In a sense, the Spirit's here, the Spirit of Jesus is here, he's present in our worship gathering. But I mean, in a bodily form, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. 
Do you know who is here? You are. I am. We are. His church, his body is here on the earth. As Jesus ascends to heaven, he is commissioning his disciples into enacting this kingdom that lays down our lives so that others might find life in him. And I've tried to sprinkle application throughout the sermon, but I just want us to hear really clearly, in the involuntary and voluntary sufferings of our life, we are called to take up our cross that others might have life. The ascension reveals to us the surprising truth that Jesus was willing to entrust to us his message of reconciliation, which is crazy because I know myself. I am not a worthy messenger. I'm not somebody who deserves to be bringing this. I don't have character that reflects well on the gospel. And this is what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 4 when he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs not to us, but to God. Church, we have been commissioned into carrying this gospel, this kingdom forward, even though we are imperfect. And in the midst of our imperfection, we must continue to look to the ascended Jesus because we will continue to face suffering. And we will continue to be invited into suffering so that other people might benefit. So if you are facing involuntary suffering, I want to encourage you, look to the throne because Jesus who is seated there is for you. He's working all things for your good. And when you're presented with the opportunity for voluntary suffering, to lay down your life, don't count the cost, but just give because Jesus who is your king will protect you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are our ascended king. We need to know that you're our king because in the sufferings of our lives, we can feel like things are out of control. I know for me, when I feel the fires of my life, I am so quick to think, who is in charge of this? What's going on? So God, I pray that the ascension would be a reminder, a deep abiding truth for us that we have not been forgotten we have not been abandoned. The fires we feel, they're not of judgment, but they are refining. And God, in the face of the work that you've called us into as your body who is here on earth, we recognize we cannot perfectly accomplish the work that is before us. So I thank you, Jesus, that your sacrifice is perfect, that we are not earning our salvation through our obedience, but we do long to be obedient to you. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray for the empowerment of your people, that we would be equipped as those who live like Jesus, to lay down our lives so that others might find it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.